Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. At this stage, I know as much as you know about James O'Keefe being thrown out of Project Veritas, which I didn't even know was possible considering James O'Keefe is Project Veritas. I have, uh, from the people at Twitchy, an account of what's going on. But I want to make sure I am on the record about a couple of things. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Ooh, I got a little choked up right there. 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. That is the number. Find everything, TonyKatz.Locals.com. Project Veritas does the undercover work. And they catch teachers talking about teaching critical race theory. Or they'll catch uh, people talking about how they're screwing over this one or, or silencing that one. And they've been doing this work for years. Going back to, remember James O'Keefe's real start is Acorn, where he posed as the pimp. This was Andrew Breitbart at his most Breitbartian. And those were incredible days. I lived in Los Angeles in those days. And Breitbart was, of course, there. Uh, and and I, I say with, with full disclosure, we knew each other. We were friendly. We were not friends. It, 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 you never make a claim that isn't real. That's, that's always nonsense to me. But what he was doing was just sensational. And that's where O'Keefe got his start. And it was great stuff. And, and Project Veritas, full disclosure, I have donated to in the past. I've told you this. I never ever, ever lie. So what in the world is happening there where you're seeing James O'Keefe being thrown out? And is it something that James did wrong or is it something else? There is a Twitter account from Old Row Swig. I have absolutely no idea who this is. I don't know. I don't have a single bit of information about the dude. But Twitchy is sharing the thread. Now, Twitchy is a site that are back in the day. Everything is a back in the day story, which for me is so funny because I was there for this. Right? Remember remember where I get my start? I get my start starting the Tea Party in California. I'm one of those original people. And let me tell you something. The Tea Party tried to do something and failed. I'm, I'm fully aware of this. We wanted to stop the spending, and we didn't. But we did uh, engage a pretty interesting precursor for people to say, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. There's a bunch of people who are bothered by what they're seeing. And it did inspire a fair amount of people to do a lot of very, very good work, and it did inspire a lot of people to do absolutely garbage crap work and be on the grift. That happens Everywhere, I am so sorry it happened with people. I can proudly say I wasn't one of those people because I never went down the road of here I'm starting a pack or here I'm going to start this this group. No, I went to radio and it was binary. You were either listening or you weren't. You either advertised or you didn't. That's how I decided to go about it. And I even went about it not doing it internet radio. I went terrestrial radio. Uh, if you take a look at all of my colleagues... The only other person, because she already had the gig, Dana Lash. Dana was already doing terrestrial radio, and then it grew from there and into the, to the monster that it is today. All my other contemporaries started in internet radio. I, I did not. That's just a little bit of, of history, and, and that history involves where a lot of these people 
and a lot of these groups come from. And Twitchy back in the day was created by Michelle Malkin. Say what you will about Michelle Malkin. She created Hot Air. She created Twitchy. She has a, a wonderful success behind her. And she is such a staunch free speech advocate that she puts herself in positions where people are like, hey, you're with some really unsavory characters. And I think that has happened to her a lot. And I should, I, that's an hour interview I'd love to do. I would love to do an hour with, with Michelle. I got to reach out to her. Because uh, I'd, be, I'd, I'd be kind of fascinated to see what is rumor versus what is, what is real. It's just, it's been a while since we've spoken. People change, things change, people grow, uh, all sorts of things happen over the course of well over a decade. James O'Keefe went from a guy dressed as a pimp taking down Acorn and their money laundering, as I see it, as I state it, um, to Project Veritas. And has had some amazing successes, has had some defeats, so is life. This guy, Swig, Old Row Swig on uh, Twitter, the th- he does a thread and it's put up by Twitchy. I trust the people at Twitchy, which is now owned by Town Hall. In that, they're like, they must see something interesting here and might know some things where I'm like, okay, I will give it at least some credence. I, wanted, I don't usually do that much setup to a story, but I thought it was important to make sure everybody had all the, all the pieces in play. A whistleblower has contacted me, writes Old Row Swig, about the news that James O'Keefe was put on leave and stripped of all authority of Project Veritas. He claims to be a supporter of Project Veritas and even a VIP at their events. But he's claiming that what has taken place is a hostile takeover, that he's a victim of a poor corporate uh, structure as Veritas is two separate organizations as a 501c3, which had very few board members, and the majority of the money, and 501c4, which had many more board members, but less money. According to a source, it has allowed two ringleaders to push James out to have significant sway over the others, despite their reasons being meritless. And then it goes through some of the board members, including a chief operating officer who uses the pronouns he, him. Which would be very unlike something James O'Keefe would do. Now, I haven't seen James's uh, Twitter bio. Maybe he's got his pronouns in there for all I know. Seems unlike him. According to the source, and I'm quoting, the board held a six and a half hour struggle session versus James where they subjected him to constant derision and insults. At the insistence of three board members. You know what a struggle session is. We go back to Chairman Mao. When Mao took over China. Remember, China wasn't always communist. This is the past hundred years thing. When Mao took over China and was instituting communism, what he would do is he would find uh, the elders in towns and in cities, and he would put them on stage and ask, well, impossible questions. Why are you a racist? But the, th- the things you see from today's progressive left, where do you think they learned it? They learned it from Mao. You know, it's, it's like the old canard, or I should say the old canard, the old saying in, in journalism, a uh, journalist sits down with a politician and says, so when did you stop beating your wife? It's that kind of stuff. And to try and humiliate uh, the person and try and denigrate the person in the eyes of, of the others in, in the town who will then take great pleasure in being a mob and laughing at and denigrating the person because they're just thankful it's not happening to them. Go back to Orwell, 1984, Room 101. 
The screaming of, no, 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 take him, not me. I'm the good guy. Take him. Well, that's where all that originates. It originates in this concept of the struggle sessions, making it impossible. Tony, you don't support DEI. Why are you a racist? Tony, you don't believe in anti-racism? You must be a racist. Explain yourself. Struggle sessions. As the story continues on Twitchy, twitchy twitchy.com, about 10 employees aired their grievances about James, which essentially boiled down to him being a tough boss to work for. At the end of the six-hour struggle session, uh, some of the board members put him on leave and stripped him of all authority. Um, I will tell you that I am very, very bothered by what it is I'm seeing here. I am hoping that this actually isn't true. What I'm hoping is that this is a massively blown out of proportion story or is actually a story to elicit a response so then he can do his work and expose somebody for something they did. I don't know if James is actually that Machiavellian, but the guy's got skill. Jimmy got skill. <laughs> this much I know. Um, I am first, if, if James O'Keefe is out and I cannot be given a substantial, substantiated reason, well, certainly I will be done. I will be done with Project Veritas, and I will be supportive of James. If they show me something James did that is beyond the pale, I will tell James that's beyond the pale. But the idea of the money that you bring people in yeah, they're, they're your board members. They're supposed to advise. They're supposed to help. They're supposed to keep things on, on the tracks. But James is the organization. He started. He did the work. He is the figurehead. He is the guy moving forward. If you all of a sudden find out that Project Veritas has started paying this one, this, and that one, that, and they start doing retreats at this four-star, five-star resort, and they start having stakes over at this place, then you'll know it was all about the money. People castigate Project Veritas. I'm not one of those people. You don't like their methodology? Okay. You don't like their methodology. I can appreciate that you don't like their methodology. Does it work? Yeah, but I don't like it. I don't care. Does it work? That's the place I had to come to early on. And what I said was, well, they should at least give it a try. Give it a go. See what happens. And by the way, I don't even think James invented anything. Isn't everything that that Project Veritas does nothing more than a takeoff to catch the predator? You infiltrate, you engage, you expose. I don't, I don't actually see a difference. I'm very bothered by the story. And the reason I bring it up, because there are times where things like this happen, I don't think I, I, I go into this level of detail, is because I've been a supporter. And when I do something, I find it very important to make sure I share with you what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. 
I am. I, I should I'll, maybe I'll get into it in the next few weeks. Your credibility is all you have. You take a look at the number of Facebook followers or Twitter followers somebody has, the amount of views someone has on YouTube. In the end, your credibility is all you have. The connection is all you have. That connection only comes through honesty and through fair dealings. You share a connection with me every single day because you tune to this station. Whether you're listening on, on WIBC in Indianapolis or WGCL in Bloomington, whether you're listening uh, on weekends uh, on, on KRMG in Tulsa or WSB in Atlanta, News Talk St. Louis, you're, you're, you're still in Indiana, WOWO or MNC, you're, you're listening proves your intent, that you're connected. The way I have to do it is by sharing with you every part of when things like this come out, how I'm connected to things and why it matters. Even when we disagree, the disagreement works because we're honest with each other about the thing. The reason we see things happening before they happen is not because we're, spot, we're, we're smarter, although we may very well be smarter, guys. It's because we're more honest about the thing. So being someone who has financially supported Project Veritas, I thought it was important to go over the story. And I am really hoping that there's not a story in here about James that I'm just going to cry about. But if this is the story, goodbye, Project Veritas. I'm Tony Katz. I think this story out of Indiana is fascinating about training teachers on firearms. My beloved Indiana, of course, Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. It's the idea that if teachers want to carry a firearm, not that they'll be paid to carry a firearm, which is correct. You shouldn't pay teachers to carry firearms because there'll be teachers who do it for the money. But if there was a need in the school, they wouldn't be prepared to do anything. You can't engage payment for carrying because you'll have people carrying under false pretenses and you won't be safer that way. You'll actually be more endangered that way. This is different. I think it's a uh, uh, state representative, Jim Lucas, who is proposing this, that it's paying uh, for the training, 40 hours of firearms training developed with the help of the Indiana Law Enforcement Academy. Now, I've made this argument many, many times, and I think that uh, these plans should be done not state down, but local up. Local school districts, local municipalities, local law enforcement coming up with best practices and ideas for allowing this kind of thing to happen. But I think it's interesting that they're talking about the state paying for the training. So now there's a conversation of, well, if someone goes through the training, are they going to be looked at with derision by other members of the teachers union? And some of the unions are like, yeah, we're neutral on this subject. It's like, whoa, they know this might be a winner. They're not going to take a position at all. I think that's kind of, kind of amazing, actually. It's a very interesting subject and one that I want to I want, to, I want to dig in on, I want to learn a little bit more uh, about because one of the pieces of this is a teacher going through a psychological evaluation. And you might say, yeah, okay, that makes sense. You go through a psychological evaluation. What happens if they fail it? Well, if they fail it, they don't get to carry a firearm in the school. If they fail the psychological evaluation, do they still get to be a teacher? And how many teachers won't go through this training because they don't want the psychological testing. It's the same exact reasoning 
when your your doctor's like, uh, you tell your doctor, I'm not feeling great. I'm feeling a little down. Do you have any guns in the house? You're afraid to answer the doctor, your own doctor, because it might mean you lose your Second Amendment rights. Same conversation applies here. So there's a lot to this subject, and I want to get into it, but but I, I got sent over to me um, the official statement from Project Veritas. I was talking about it earlier. Project Veritas, James O'Keefe, they do the undercover reporting uh, that we often see, and people lose their jobs over it like they should because they're absolutely horrible people engaged in real affronts against society and individuals. And James O'Keefe, who, who leads that, who started that organization, the story is that he got, he got thrown out. He got thrown out. Well, now there's a statement from Project Veritas. Here it is. Project Veritas has achieved immense growth and impact during the last three years. Like all newsrooms at this stage, the Project Veritas board of directors and management are constantly evaluating what the best path forward is for the organization. The board and management are continuing this internal evaluation to assure our long-term success. Project Veritas will never stop, and we will never let our supporters down. There are 65-plus employees of Project Veritas dedicated to continuing the mission to expose corruption, dishonesty, waste, fraud, and other misconduct in both public and private institutions. To our supporters, we hear you, we care about you, and we will never give up. Um, uh... What the hell is that? Um, I'm serious. What, what is that? What is that statement? Hey, guys, uh, we're Project Veritas. Uh, thanks for the money. Why was James O'Keefe, the guy who started this whole thing, why was he removed? How come I don't have an answer to that question? Why don't I have an answer to that question? What kind of statement is this? And, and that was their official statement on Twitter. They put, Despite what the corporate media tries to portray about our organization, know this. We have never been more motivated and dedicated to our mission than now. This is, this is weird. What was it? Was it Viva Frey who referred to it as, this is much of a word salad explanation as Pfizer's response to your last expose. Yes, and Pfizer looked a damn fool. Dude, it is looking like they pushed him out for the money as uh, was was originally reported uh, via a Twitter feed, uh, a, a tweet stream uh, over at Twitchy. This is bad. And based on this, I have been a supporter of Project Veritas in the past. I wouldn't be again. Not with this board of directors. Not with a statement like this. This is weird. And getting weirder. Man, I've got a lot to get to here in Texas, people. Came down for a couple days. I'll explain it coming up. This is Tony Katz today. Find everything, tonycats.locals.com. It's not like there isn't something to actually be angry about, something to actually be sad about. When you hear about a 13-year-old hiding behind parked cars, shooting at others, killing two people, and then himself being shot at and being wounded. That's an absolutely, positively awful story. The problem, as I'm going to describe it to you, is why it gets parsed, phrased in certain ways. Like hearing the story about a boy shooting and killing two people, and then what is it that we hear? We hear that he had dreams of being a chef. Dreams of being a chef. Wait a second. 
What do I need to know about his dreams? Why is he shooting two people? How did he get shot? What happened? And then you learn that this story takes place in Israel. And then you learn that this is a story of a 13-year-old Palestinian boy hiding behind parked cars, opening fire on Jews in Jerusalem. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it is good to be with you. It is, man, this whole trip is so strange because I'm in Texas. I am actually a blend bar cigar in the woodlands in Texas. That's where, that's where we're doing the show uh, today. For as long as we can do it in here, we might get moved to like a, a more private spot because they got things going on left and right. Big cigar event uh, going on, a celebration of small business, and I wanted to be there uh, for it. So I flew down to Texas, and, and that's, that's where I'm at. Let me get into this story. What Reuters did here is kind of stunning, kind of amazing, kind of shocking. Because they decided to take this story, this story of what happened to a 13-year-old that he thinks it's okay to be shooting at people and turned it into, oh, this poor child, he dreamed of being a chef. Mm, That wasn't to be. That wasn't to be. That's not the story. The story here is what happened in this kid's life that got him to the place that he is shooting people, willing to put his life on the line. But Reuters starts the story that this child was pressing his teachers for the school report he needed so he could go to a Jerusalem college to train as a chef. Three days later, he's lying unconscious in a hospital, accused of opening fire at a group of Israeli passersby in Jerusalem. People who knew him are puzzled about what could have prompted him to carry out such an act. Now, we ask ourselves this very often when we see things happening in the U.S. What could have brought somebody to engage in this act? How could they go about shooting people at Pulse nightclub in Orlando? How could they go about trying to kill people on the Lunar New Year in California? How could they decide to fly planes into buildings? We would be fools if we did not recognize the levels of not instigation, but indoctrination at play here when we're talking about 13-year-old Palestinian kids shooting at Jews, not shooting at an indiscriminate crowd, shooting at Jews. Now, maybe you could say, Tony, he was, he was shooting uh, in there in, in the area, and he hit Jews. I mean, it's Israel. The odds were with him. You can go by that argument if you choose, if you want, if that makes you somehow feel good, but it's a bad argument. Equally bad of an argument is to take a look at this story and say, oh, he wanted to be a chef, you know. The family of the boy says he, quote, just happened to be there and was shot at. Nobody believes this. This is a constant and continual refrain. Go after Israel. Go after the Jews. The Jews are always wrong. The Jews are at fault. Even if we have to take our 13-year-old child and put them up as cannon fodder. That's what they said. That's what they're saying. This story 
is an incredible look at two levels of horrific depravity. The first, the hatred of Israel's Jewish state, the hatred of Jews as a whole, so deep and so entrenched that they train children to kill. And we know what the madrasas do. We're not somehow engaging in some kind of new age, new level politics here. We know this is the story. We know this is happening from the alpha to the omega, the beginning to the end. We are aware that this is happening. But the second part of the story might actually be, might actually be, not can't be, equally as, I'll let you decide, horrific. That Reuters... Reuters wants to be the one who pushes this as, oh, those Israelis, if they could just control themselves. You know, everything would be better if Jews just went back to where they came from. Well, biblically, historically, uh, they've got a claim to the land, and it's theirs, and this is over. Now, you may not know this about me, but I am a very, very willing man. I am an outrageously willing man. And I believe in Israel's right to exist. I am a Zionist. I apologize to no one. It's not a dirty word. I'll take on anyone, anywhere, anytime. So if you're screaming on a college campus right now, go on and invite me. I'm ready. I'm ready for your BDS crowd. I'm ready uh, for your Jews for for. What, what are they, just Jews for justice and peace in Palestine? It's the People's Front of Judea, the Judeans' People's Front. They've got a different name every single day of the week. I'm ready. I am not defending every last Israeli policy. That would be criminally insane because I can't defend every last Israeli policy. But I can defend the idea that Israel has a right to exist Thus, a Zionist. I apologize to no one. Certainly not those Jew-hating bastards that are part of BDS. Those people don't deserve my love or respect. They don't deserve decency nor kindness. They are awful people. They lie to to students on college campuses. They try to ostracize Jewish students and Jewish groups. They try to uh, uh, create a solitary environment for Jews But no one discusses the fact they also are doing it to non-Jewish students, trying to isolate non-Jewish students from engaging in conversation and data to keep non-Jewish students from having friends who might celebrate a different Christmas than they do. BDS is just downright awful. I make no apologies about being a Zionist. I make no apologies for the existence, or I should say that Israel has the right to exist. Never mind, I make no apologies for the existence of Israel. But apologies should be made by so-called journalists and so-called news organizations that so clearly put a bias, and the bias is not into why is anybody training this 13-year-old to kill people. The bias is in those Israelis And this isn't the first time this happens. Of course, the New York Times is just absolutely famous for this. They're filthy famous for this. This is what they do. As Daily Wire points out about a decade ago, there's a group called the Committee for Accuracy in Middle East uh, Reporting. 
Uh, and uh, they're called CAMRA, Committee for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting and Analysis. And they had a pamphlet called Indicting Israel, New York Times Coverage of the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict. And it talks about the non-stop bias the Times has against Israel. That's going back a decade, and you could go back longer. You can go back longer. Of course you can. The conversation here has to be, how does a 13-year-old get to this place? What is he being taught? What levels of hate is he being indoctrinated with? Not just random every now and again statements by some loser uncle who happens to be over to drink too much and eat his brother's food. I'm talking about on a daily, regimented, programmed basis. When do we start discussing honestly, honestly, what it is that is happening? How evil the situation is? And how with the Palestinian Authority in power, I should state Hamas in power, there is no way for this to stop. When you see a 13-year-old doing this, and he isn't the only 13-year-old doing this, you realize quite quickly that the idea of a two-state solution simply cannot happen. It cannot happen when one state wants to kill the other state. It cannot happen because Yasser Arafat was given multiple opportunities for the peace, for the land, for the state of their own, and he turned it down because he knew that the goal wasn't the state. The goal was pushing the Jews into the freaking sea. Why do you think they chant? From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. That's not a rallying cry. It's a call to freaking genocide. It's about drowning Jews. And Arafat never wanted peace. Arafat wanted the cause because getting rid of the Jews was the desire, not having peace. The desire of Hamas is not peace. This is a recording We've been through this so many times and you've heard it in so many places, but for some people it might actually be new. So allow me to share with you the data as I just have to get you to the place where we clearly understand the desire is not for peace, the desire is for destruction. And there can be no two-state solution. It can't exist if Hamas is still around. You cannot have peace when you train 13-year-olds not to ask a girl out on a date, but how to kill the Jew around the corner. You can't have peace. You will never, ever, ever have it. This is the reality that Israel deals with every single day. This is their life. This is what it takes. This is what you have to fight through to exist. So I give them all the support I can in the recognition that they have the right to exist. They do. Don't ever forget that. I'm Tony Katz. So you guys know that I'm a sucker for small business. I love small business. I love businesses that try. I love people that create. And one of the reasons I came down to Texas, other than brisket, is because Blend, Blend Bar Cigar, right there on on 82nd, 
in Indianapolis. They've got other locations. They've got locations in Nashville and in Pittsburgh and here in, outside of Houston in a place called the Woodlands. And, and you are about to experience, and you'll be seeing the videos, they're celebrating their fifth year anniversary. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, good to be with you. Corey Johnston joins me right now. He is the proprietor, the proprietor, let me say it right, proprietor, uh, the the guy who owns the thing (laughs) over there at Blend Bar Cigar. And and honestly, Mazel Tov to you, um, five years is difficult for anyone Five years is difficult swinging yourself into COVID and out of COVID and with all the hiring issues that we hear about. What is this like? Well, I'm glad it's 2023. That's for sure. Great to see you, Tony. Thank you so much for this. Um, We're so happy you're down here to visit us. And uh, yeah, it's been five years down here. You know, Texas uh, weathered the COVID a little bit better than than Indiana or uh, Pittsburgh or Nashville, where our other locations are. Um, but you know, we got through it. There's still people that want to work and they're making a lot more money than ever. And, um, you know, the supply chain issues are correcting themselves in our industry a little bit. So really, you know, 22 ended really well. And then 2023 is going to be a great year, even with all the other national news and, and everything else. But for us, it's good. Cigars and bourbon are still doing very well they're still tops they're still tops but when you when you have a place like this and what do you have you have a hundred seats in here uh we have a hundred inside and our patio sits uh, 85 so you still need people you still Mm -hmm. need staff and and while there's a lot of hiring happening there's also a lot of people saying i can't find the people this is hard to do it's hard to build a business when you can't have the people to help you build the business right and you are correct about that. And what we found is that there are, though, professional um, people that either want part-time work, but they do like this atmosphere where it's, you know, you have to be over 21. There's no children. Um, it's an adult uh, a setting. Uh, and so you're serving uh, high-end single malt scotch, high-end bourbon, uh, the finest cigars. I mean, it really caters to a unique niche. Um, so there are people that want to be in this business. Talking to Corey Johnston, the owner, I won't say proprietor anymore, of Blend Bar Cigar. Uh, you can catch them in Indianapolis, blendbarcigar.com, or in Nashville, or in Pittsburgh, or right here in, in the Woodlands. Um, this, this celebration that, that we came for, we're going to meet a lot of people from the trades and, and everything else. And yes, liquor did incredibly well during COVID, and so did cigars during COVID. And that is a, a weird, odd kind of, of saving grace uh, but when you look uh, to the future and all the things that hospitality has dealt with, you've seen people who've had to close and not come back. Is it your feeling that hospitality is going to suffer a setback because there aren't people to learn the skills to then go on to the next place? It's going to take longer to get people into the place where they're able to handle a high-end establishment like Blend or, or higher-end kind of places. Yes, and actually, uh, we're looking at this year to, to sort of round about your, your question um what i've noticed and we've all noticed is that uh the service levels uh are good service is harder to find agreed and, and so but what we're doing is focusing there's a difference between service and hospitality service is delivering the drink hospitality is how do you feel are you have a good feeling about it and so we're discovering that um yes we see service declining but it, but if it's going to cost us more we're gonna have to put more energy effort into get getting people to provide that good service that good hospitality 
And that's going to be the trick. And that is going to impact um, a lot of businesses that are service-oriented like this. Corey Johnson, uh, I appreciate you taking the time. So it's the five-year celebration, and and uh, so Davidoff Cigars. And listen, there's a lot of cigar brands. You guys know I smoke absolutely everything, but Blend Bar Cigar with Davidoff, and there's going to be uh, – I, I saw four briskets just yesterday. Uh, I believe there's going to be a fountain of chocolate. <laughs> no I, I, no fountain uh, I'm getting on a plane, guys. I'm coming back. There's no fountain of chocolate. Corey Johnson, Blend Bar Cigar. Go check it out. BlendBarCigar.com. I appreciate you taking the time. Always, always, always. Keep it here. This is Tony Katz today.